We turn in God's Word this evening to the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter. Mark chapter 9. For those of you visiting, we are in a series expository messages taking us through Mark's Gospel. This evening we'll be considering verses 38 through 41, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 33 through 41 so you understand at least part of the context out of which the section we're on this evening comes. Mark 9, 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's fire the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word and ask your blessing on us as we hear your word. We just pray that you give us a love for your word and a willingness to accept everything that is in your word as being true. We pray your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings this to us through the preaching of the word. Just bless him abundantly, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We look at three things from this passage this evening. If you have the sermon outline, Point one will be the disciples' concern, secondly, the man involved, and then thirdly, the Lord's teaching. It is the concern of the disciples, although John is the one who speaks. And it might be interesting just to, to note that it is John who speaks. This is the one who raises the situation. This is one of the two, along with his brother James, who Jesus nicknames the Sons of Thunder. That's not what they were called by others. That's not the, the little title that they went around with since they were little boys, Sons of Thunder. One always, I, I always have the picture in my mind, they probably had that on the back of their leather jackets while they were hanging out with their fishing boats or something. You know, Sons of Thunder. But actually, it's Jesus who gives them that name. 
Uh, we are told that earlier in the Gospel of Mark, actually, Mark chapter 3, that title, Jesus called them by. Now, why did he give them that title? Well, it might have to do with an event that we find in Luke chapter 9. If you want to uh, look at that event, it's interesting because it sort of takes place uh, in the same context as who is the greatest, anyone not against us is for us. So the backdrop is sort of the same. But then we have in verse 51 the following. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. The sons of thunder. Lord, do you want judgment to come? It's a little bit different picture than we get of the Apostle John as the one who, the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who is found leaning on Jesus' breast there in uh, the upper room. There is another side of John, it appears. The one of judgment. The one of action. The one who is ready to call forth thunder and lightning and fire from heaven. So Jesus has his own nickname for these two brothers. The sons of thunder. It is he now raises the point that we saw another. It is James and John who, in our next chapter in the Gospel of Mark, are going to come and ask Jesus, can, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? They're very forceful men. And so when they encounter, we find out, this other, notice what is done. We tried to stop him. It's in that same tone, isn't it? As do you want us to call down fire from heaven? The sons of thunder. Well, this is who raises it, is John. We find that, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. Second thing in regards to that is what is their concern? Their concern is this other. This, this other one who is outdoing an exorcism. This other one who is casting out demons. Sounds like he was doing it on more than one occasion. More than one situation. More than one had come to him and this individual is casting out. But he's not one of the twelve. Nor is he likely one of the 70 that has been sent out previously as well. Nor probably one of the 120 because John seems to have no clue as to who this is. There is no name associated. It's probably nobody that Jesus cured or healed. 
because then John would have given us that reference. Hey, we saw that guy, that guy, you know, who was a cripple that, that you made whole. Or we saw that legion guy. Remember the guy you cast out demons from? We saw him and he was casting out demons. So this man apparently is nobody that they have any history with whatsoever. And their concern is that this man is out there casting out demons in the name of Jesus. There is some sort of professional jealousy here. There is some sort of concern over this renegade who is not part of the group who is casting out demons. Now on the good side, perhaps John was trying to protect Jesus. But then again, we have kind of a lack of understanding. We have sort of the Simon Peter, no, you're not going to Jerusalem to die, as if Jesus somehow needs to have his name guarded and protected. So no matter which way we look at this, John's words come off as being, really? Really, John? But you see, we have to understand it in the context. And the, the bigger context, other than the verses that I read tonight, are these. Peter, James, and John have been up on the mountain of transfiguration. They have been in this exclusive group that has seen the glorified Christ. So they have that going. Meanwhile, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the disciples are down at the foot of the mountain struggling to cast a demon out of a child. And they've been unable to do it. And they're frustrated. They're arguing with scribes over the fact that they're inability to cast out this demon. Jesus comes down, what's all the fuss? The man, uh, the father comes forward, says, hey, I tried to ask your disciples to do this, but they couldn't do anything. Jesus immediately cast out the demon, and then when the disciples later ask, why couldn't we do that? Jesus retorts, this kind can only come out by prayer. In other words, only by those who have put their full trust and faith in him. The disciples were at that point seeking to do it in their own power, in their own strength. And Satan's like, don't know you. I don't recognize your authority. But he recognizes Jesus' authority. That's in the background. Then we have the argument. Who is the greatest? They've been talking about, while Jesus is, is talking about his dying, they've been discussing which one of them is really the greatest in the kingdom. So they're thinking about their little enclave. Jesus corrects their thinking, as we had last week. He takes the little child, sets him in front of them, embraces the child, and says, Now, guys, greatness is not about who's first. Greatness is about servanthood. And whoever does something for this child in my name, they're my servant. They're the greatest in the kingdom. Now look at verse 37. 
Whoever receives one such child in my name. Now look what happened. John says, see, it's not like next week, John says. It's not like, oh, they're in another village, and John says. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. John says, hey, Jesus, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name. We told them to stop. There's your context. Their inability, their discussion of who is the greatest, their discussion of who is the most important. Jesus saying, whatever you do in my name, something significant. John now is like, we came across this guy. He was doing something in your name. But he's not one of us, so we told him to stop. That's the right thing to do, right, Jesus? That is, in essence, what he's saying. We did the right thing. We told him to quit. Now, secondly, let's look at this man involved. Let's see what, what, what do we find out about this man from this small little glimpse that we're given here in Mark chapter ten, 9. First of all, we know nothing of his identity. To surmise who it is would be pure speculation. Some commentators think it might be one of John the Baptist's disciples, which probably has some validity. Jesus' disciples probably would not have known them. So that might make some sense, at least. But really, we have nobody in mind. This is somebody who is out casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But that's the second thing to note. We don't know who he is, but we do know what he's been doing. This man has been involved in exorcisms. Not just one, but demons. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now remember the context. We had disciples down at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration who can't cast out a demon. Here is a man who is casting out demons. Now immediately our, our light bulbs ought to go on and we ought to be going, hmm, that tells us something about this man, doesn't it? The fact that he has the ability to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, something the disciples had been limited in doing. What does that tell us? What it tells us is that this man is a man of faith. He's not casting out demons by some sort of incantation. He's not casting out demons by some sort of trickery. He's not casting out demons by some sort of sorcery. He's not casting out demons faking it. He's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And notice Jesus is not, oh boy, yeah, we do have a problem here, guys. If Jesus saw a problem with this man's actions based upon this man's faith, don't you think Jesus would have told us? But obviously, Jesus recognizes and knows 
as he is almighty God, all-knowing, all-wise. He knows this man. He knows what this man is doing. This is not news. John's not telling him anything new. It's not like Jesus is going, oh, really? You guys did that? I didn't know there were other guy people out there. Cast. Jesus knows full well what's happening. And he knows full well what John and the other disciples have tried to do. Now it's coming to a head. Now John's bringing it to the forefront. Oh, you, you talked about in your name. Hey, that reminds me. But Jesus nowhere condemns this man. Neither his actions nor his faith. Which would indicate to us that Jesus sees that this man casting out demons in his name is doing so in the faith that the disciples should have had down there at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration, but did not. This man is not just using Jesus' name as some sort of magical phrase. You know, I'll just throw it in, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Can't hurt anything to do something in Jesus' name. I'll just throw it in and see what happens. No, by his using the name of Jesus, it is an indication here of his true faith. So we have the disciples, on the one hand, saying, we told them to stop. We have a man who is doing something by true faith, a great and mighty and noble work, the casting out of demons. Now we come to the Lord's teaching. Jesus said, but do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward, will soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now first of all, let me re remind you very quickly, although it might take me a little bit, what Jesus didn't say here. Because this is one of those passages where people read in more than what they should, while we tend to, I'll include us as Reformed folk tonight, while we tend to read in less than what we should. But there's a whole lot of people out there who read more into Jesus' comment than what he meant. First of all, Jesus did not say, what a person believes doesn't matter as long as they're doing good. That isn't what Jesus said. But that's what we oftentimes hear. Well, they're doing something, a good work can't be that bad. After all, he who is not against us is for us. Like, belief has no part of it. Yet, it does have a part of it. It's an important element of this. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name. By true faith, he was involved in that. But Jesus doesn't say, well, it doesn't really matter what the guy believes. He was doing a good thing, casting out demons. Don't, don't hinder him. Secondly, I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't say, hey, Judas, Judas, you have the money bag. Tell you what, that guy over there, 
boy, he's out there in the ministry all by himself. Tell you what, Judas, you go give him half of what we have and you give it to him. Jesus doesn't say that either. Nor does Jesus say, you know what? That guy's involved in a very important ministry. Half of you go follow him. Half of you stay with me. The other half of you go follow him. He doesn't do that either. All he says is, don't hinder him. Don't try to stop the outreach that this man is involved in. Now, you know how we know that's true? Because we in the Reformed community understand Scripture by Scripture. So the only way to understand what Jesus is actually saying here is to understand it in the light of Scripture. Let me take you to a couple of passages just to, to point that out for you. Go to Matthew chapter 24, for example. Matthew chapter 24. We'll be at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 3. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many, oh, note the phrase, many will come, how? In my name. You see, you see what's going on with Mark 9? In my name, in my name. He was casting out demons in my name. Now Jesus says, There will be many who come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. I don't think Jesus is giving some sort of blanket, hey, as long as they're Christian, it's okay. Because obviously there are going to be those who come and claim to be Christian, but are not, but are intent on leading people astray. Now, I'll give you the other scripture passages. Time kind of gets in the way here. Galatians, okay, chapter 1, 6 through 9. It's Paul speaking of the Judaizers. And you know the harshness with which Paul deals with those false teachers of his day. Or those of us who are now studying 2 Peter. You're working on the lesson of 2 Peter chapter 2 in which we're dealing with the false teachers and the scoffers and Peter's warning. Don't have anything to do with them. Stay away from them. These, these are people who are leading you apart from Christ. But let me give you one passage from the Apostle John himself. How does John take that which Jesus said? Revelation chapter 2. This is just one example. Revelation chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith and service, your patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. 
But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Seems to me there's a distinction here. I'm sure this woman that he calls Jezebel is saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. Yet look at the judgment that is called down upon her. Where is the application of don't hinder, don't stop, let it continue, for the one who is not against us is for us. Oh, that's right, the one who is not against us. Not just the one who says they're a Christian, not the one who is pretending they're a Christian, not the one who is using Christianity as some sort of guise, as some sort of charade. See, Jesus doesn't say, take away all discretion. If they say they're a Christian, support them, follow them. That's all you need to hear. You know, one question you have to ask is this. Are you a Christian? If they say yes, boy, you got to be supporting them 100%. No, that's not what Scripture says. And that's not what Jesus said either. So let's not make Jesus say something he did not say. But at the same time, let's make sure we hear what Jesus did say. The first thing is this. Let it continue. Now why? Why is Jesus willing to let this man continue? Because first of all, you got to be reminded of the context. The reason John and the other disciples said, stop that. You can't be casting out demons in Jesus' name is because, underscore, he was not one of us. He wasn't one of the twelve. What gives him a right? How come he gets to do those things? He's not one of the twelve. You see, it's, it's sort of some professional jealousy that is going on. It's this provincialism that, that oftentimes I think probably we in the reform camp get as well. But don't, I, I'm not just castigating ourselves. I think every group gets that perspective. They're not Baptists? Well, then, you know... If they're not Methodist, well, you know, but we tend to look at, well, if they're not Reformed, I don't know about that. But Jesus is saying, don't be that way. You can't look at the work of the kingdom. You have to see the bigger picture of the kingdom. You and I profess, when we stand and profess the words of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in one holy Catholic church, one holy universal church that was there before there was ever a church that was called Reformed on its name or Presbyterian or Orthodox Presbyterian. The church is bigger 
than us. The church is bigger than Baptist. The church is bigger than Methodist. And we can't be stopping the work of the church. Folks, we're in a war. We're in a war against Satan. Who, he who is not against us is for us. My friends, if Pastor Gunderman at Berlin Baptist gets arrested this week for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am going to be at that courthouse. I am going to be there praying. I am going to be there working. And I am going to be encouraging our elders and deacons, let's pay those legal fees. Because he is not against us. And I would hope and trust that that would be the same if it were me. This is what we have to be doing. We need to be banding together. We need to be, get, be getting rid of these provincial blinders that say, if it's not OPC, if it's not Christian Reformed, if it's not Reformed, if it's not United Reformed, we can't support the work. In fact, what we're really going to do is what John wanted to do, which is to close it down. Shut it down. See, the picture would be this. Pastor Gunderman from Berlin Baptist gets arrested for preaching the gospel. I go down to the courthouse and say, hey, I sure hope you throw the book at that guy. Man, he's a Baptist. We don't need any of that around here. Just shut it down. Shut down the whole thing. Maybe they'll come to Little Farms. See, that's what John is after here. He wants to close down the gospel and the ministry of the gospel because it wasn't part of the twelve. And Jesus is saying, no, let it continue. Don't hinder it. Don't try to stop it. Let that work in the community, in the state, in the nation, in the world continue. But then he gives a further reason. Because he tells us that you can't glorify me one moment. You can't be doing a work such as driving out a demon in my name and at the next moment turn against me. Either you are with me or you are against me. And the disciples have not caught that big picture yet. Oh, they're going to. <laughs> they're going to, believe me, come Pentecost, come the rest of their lives. They're, they're going to begin to grasp what Jesus meant here. But right now they're not thinking that way. And the problem is too often we're not either. Christ wants us to see and understand. No, this man may not have had all the information the disciples did. This, may, this man might not have had all the teaching that the disciples had. 
They were privy to eating and drinking with Jesus. This man most likely wasn't. But Jesus is like, he's with us. He's one of us. Don't stop. Don't hinder that work. But then he closes with something very interesting. I hope you caught this from Jesus. For whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of, cold, a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, Why did Jesus insert that? Why isn't it just whoever gives a cup of cold water? But it's whoever gives that cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. It's the same thing he says, you know, when he talks about the judgment at the end of Matthew. Whatever you do to the least of these of mine, not to the world, not to the world, but whatever you do to the least of these of mine, you do unto me. We have no right to equate Christ with an unbeliever. That unbeliever is not part of the body of Christ. But we are. Whatever you do to the least of these of mine, when you give that cup of water because they belong to Christ, you don't lose your reward. Here again, Jesus is not throwing things wide open. He certainly tell us, telling us to be giving and loving to be charitable, to be involved in works of mercy. But he's not saying throw the cups of water away. Give them to whoever. To those who are mine. This becomes our first responsibility to care for the body of Christ. See, that's what the whole passage is about. The bigger picture. The whole body of Christ. And we have a special responsibility as God's people to care for one another. This is who is to be the objects of our love and of our mercy, those who are part of the body of Christ. Now, they may not be an arm like we are. They may be a foot, but we're so still support, supposed to care, and to love. And when we do these works of mercy, these acts of compassion, this encouraging of the work of the gospel, what does Christ say? We will not lose our reward. Are we given our reward because of those works? No. But we won't lose it either. In fact, what happens is this. You see, when we do that which Christ desires for us to do, we are given peace of mind. 
Why peace of mind? Well, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then I'm doing the right thing. And I should have peace of mind. When I'm not doing what God wants me to do, I ought to have a mind that's disturbed and upset and running and running and running and running because I'm not doing what Christ wants me to do. But part of the blessing of being obedient to Christ is to have that peace of mind. I am doing that which God desires me to do. I am not hindering the work of the gospel. I am seeking to be compassionate and caring and loving to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's at the end of that section in Matthew that we have blessing number two, the second reward. Christ will acknowledge us on the day of judgment. It's what that whole passage in Matthew is all about, the sheep and the goats. And I will say, come near to me. Your mind, why? Well, you did this to the least of these who are mine. We did? Yes. You did it unto me. I know you. You're one of mine. And you know what? For all of eternity, for all of eternity, here is reward number three. We are gathered together with all those who confess Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. That song, all hail the power of Jesus' name, that glorious, glorious throng of people. I've got a feeling it's more than the 30,000 in the OPC. I got a feeling it's a lot bigger than all of the Reformed denominations here present in this building. I got a feeling it's a lot bigger, a lot bigger than any of us think. Jesus is saying, don't shrink my kingdom by your petty jealousies. See, the body of Christ for which I died. And God's people say, Amen. Father, may we take your word, hear it, apply it, live it, for the glory and for the honor of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And God's people again say, Amen.